Right, so we've been doing quite a few episodes featuring musicians from Kolkata of late, which is kind of ironic considering my somewhat fleeting and rather troublesome relationship with my birth city. That being said, the relevance of today's conversation does not deserve any form of collateral damage as a result of the same. This conversation will speak for itself, becoming a bit of a habit for me to say that with regards to most of these episodes, but uh, yeah. Bodhi and I do have to go back as well, as the episode notes will indicate. He is a musician who is probably all set to make history, but like I said, let the conversation do the talking so you can decide for yourself. I would, however, like to remind you that this is an independent show. It's brought to you by the Holistic Musician Academy and everynowhearmusic.com. Both of which are pretty much me. So if you'd like to support this endeavor, please go join our mailing list. Please go to holisticmusicianacademy.com. We have a free course for songwriters up right now. It's for a limited period. Additionally, you probably don't know this, but all podcast listeners get a 25% discount on any courses on my coaching website. In case this is news to you, go check out the link on the episode notes. Okay, without much further ado, Bodhisattva Ghosh. Hello. Hey man, you doing okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. FYI, we are already on tape. Does that work for you? Uh, yes, yes, okay. That's okay. Because... I am legally obliged to let you know when I start recording. Yeah, sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I started recording as well. Nice. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw, and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. How are you doing today, man? It's good to connect again. Yeah, doing fine. Excellent. Um, I usually start off this podcast with a bit of a reminiscence on where I meet my guests. You and I, we have a bit of a history, although it's quite a bit in the past, but we do have a bit of a history. Yeah, that's right. We have been sporadically on tour on uh, <laughs> some some pretty random projects, really, come to think of it. Random but yeah. meaningful in their own way. Okay. Um, when was the first time it was it with uh, Tonmai Bose's Tal Tantra or was it Kendraka? I, I, my memory fails. I, I think it. I think it was Kendraka. Uh, you had come to Calcutta and we had played together. Was that the first time? That was the first time actually. Yeah. I think in 2010, sometime in 2010. We did uh, connect on one of your tours in Switzerland as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, exactly. That was yeah. That was 2011. Yeah, that nice. was Ju- uh, July. In nice. Basel. Yeah, that was actually really good fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah, thanks for having me around. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, same here, same here. Cheers, man. Um, so, um, what I'd like to start off with, I mean, uh, you embody a very specific role in the history of contemporary music in Kolkata. I would I would, I would, would go as far to say you're probably one of the, oh, you, you were third generation of contemporary guitar players in, in the Indian landscape, or would you say fourth or second? What's your take on it? <clears throat> I don't know. I would say third generation because you had people like Carlton Keto. Right. You know, of course, yeah, and then you had people like Amit Dutto, and then it's right. me. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, my, so I think third generation. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. That's actually something I was a little hazy on. <laughs> so yeah, it's third yeah. generation, and um, it's I mean, with a musical history as diverse and as complex with India's or even Kolkata's or West Bengal's, it's not very easy to unpack the whole thing in a linear way. 
Mm. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'll be able to unpack it in a specifically linear way. But let's have a go, man. Where did your musical journey start? I know that's a very cliche kind of a uh, question, <laughs> but um, I can't think of a better place to start. So let's just do it. Where, what's your earliest memory of music? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have been listening to music since I was like pretty much a baby. Like My earliest memories, I think that uh, when I was around two years old, that's 1985, and I had, you know, I was like a pretty bratty kid and mm. I didn't eat. You know? And so my mom used to put on Dark Side of the Moon, the LP. Nice. And I used to listen to that. Yeah, and and I, I would actually just shut up and eat. So that's my earliest memory. Wait, so the Dark Side of the Moon was how your mom got you to eat your meals? Yeah, that's true. That's, that true. Is that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> FYI, Dark Side of the Moon was my first serious album as well. Wow. So that's actually, yeah, I mean, that's actually one coincidence we definitely have in common. Yeah. I mean, uh, no words to describe that album, really. That's really like a timeless masterpiece. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty iconic. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's my earliest memory. Yeah, no, so that's about it. And, uh, you know, my father was a huge fan of, uh, still is, a huge fan of, you know, Hindustani classical music. Beautiful. And my mom, you know, because she was studying at Jadavpur University uh, in master's in English literature and things like that. So she was pretty much a hippie. So I got exposed to one, on one hand, you know, things like Simon and Garfunkel, Pink Floyd, Beatles, Led Zeppelin. Nice. And through my father, I got exposed to Vilayat Khan, Nikhil Banerjee, Ravi Shankar, and eventually, you know, Bhimshen Joshi, of course, how can I forget? So things like this, you know. Beautiful. So I grew up in this kind of an environment. Uh, I was never really into, you know, mainstream Indian music like Bollywood and things like that. So, and so I used to listen to these things. And when I was around 15, 14, 15, uh, I had a friend called Neil, who's right now in London. You know, he's an NRI. And he used to bring, back in 97, 98, he used to bring all these mini discs and uh, LDs and things like that of latest releases, like uh, in England, Britain. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like uh, Oasis, Smashing Pumpkins, REM, uh, things like that. Like the night Radiohead. Nice. There are a couple of points I really want to focus in on a little uh, to start off with. I think our generation, I'm not quite sure if we are the same generation. I'm 42. I can't remember. Are, are you, you're probably a generation. I'm just, just four years younger to you. So. Okay. So we are roughly the same generation. I think roughly the same. Uh, we, we, our generation got to experience one of the last remnants of pre-globalized India where that's ac right. access that's to right. music was still uh, an enormous privilege. Exactly, exactly. That's very right. Now it's I mean, uh, <laughs> and, and I think that lack of privilege has ended up being a privilege at this point. Yeah, I would say, yeah. I mean, we, we used to be so excited that we used to dig into all the details. I think exactly. That's so. I mean, the, the amount of... Uh, it kind of uh, added a certain kind of... You, you had to be really passionate in that age to really pursue music. You know, it was not for the faint of heart. That, uh, yeah, you can say that. It's not like you, can just you could just turn your phone on and just find out what a certain release sounds like or what a certain band in a certain part of the world sounds like. Right, exactly, exactly. And the thing is that, you know, right now, you know, you're, if you don't like a piece of music, after 30 seconds, you'll just turn it off. Yeah, totally with you, man. And so what happened back then is that no matter how much, I mean, I bought a lot of really bad or I would say albums that I don't like, but I ended up listening to each and every one of them because I bought it myself. Mm. So that investment right. investment was 
uh, there. So music was very, very serious. Mm, yeah, a sense of value. It's interesting. Um, Benny Rietfeld, Santana's uh, MD for almost 20 years now and bass player was on this podcast recently and uh, he actually really enjoyed these stories. I, I pretty much told him a very similar account of what you just referred to about. Uh, and it was <laughs> quite a funny feeling telling him about how we'd really break a leg to find bootlegged versions of obscure, obscure releases of Santana. Even Santana records, for example, weren't, weren't always as easy. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. It's also interesting, like these guys who would technically be referred to as, I don't know, pirates, music pirates or whatever, in the West... They'd probably be referred mm -hmm. to as like the as curators and archivists, you know, because that's actually what they were doing. Ah, yeah, that's a, that's true. Actually. So it's it's very interesting how the whole okay, the whole nomenclature changes depending on the general narrative. That's true. Uh, especially in this day and age, at a point where all of this music, for which people have gone to jail back in the day. <laughs> Um, it's now all free. So, um, so moving on from that early phase, what was your first acquaintance with your guitar like? Do you remember your first guitar? Oh, of course, of course, absolutely. It cost sixteen hundred rupees. That's uh, right now. It would be five thousand rupees. Wow. Yeah, that would be how many euros? A little more than fifty. I don't have it right now with me. I have given it to uh, Tanmayda, Tanmay boss as a token of appreciation. Mm. That's where it all started. I was least interested in learning theory and scales and all of that. All I wanted to do was play the songs that I love. Yeah, so I just picked up, you know, went on the internet, which was a very nascent thing back then, you know, on Netscape Navigator. Wow. I think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I downloaded, yeah, chord charts of Beatles songs and like, mostly wrong, all these chords were. So that's how it started. Um, so... At which point did you come up with the decision of becoming a professional musician? Oh, that's a great question, actually. Would you say it was, uh, it was the byproduct of the lifestyle you were already living? Or was it like an epiphany where you said, hey, I'm going to do this and that's it? No, it was kind of an epiphany if you uh, look at it that way. It's because, <clears throat> because, like I said, I was playing with a rock band and obviously I was studying in college as well. Mm. And because I was studying computer science. So that was always like my very serious, you know, passionate hobby and things like that. But I used to, what happened, what actually happened is very interesting to is that, you know, there are, back in those times, and there used to be a lot of these jazz concerts in Calcutta. Mm -hmm. And people from the West used to come and uh, perform, be it, you know, European bands or American bands or things like that. And, um, and even, uh, even you know, people from Calcutta, like my teacher, Amit Datta and uh, Kochuda, obviously, mm. Monajit Datta. So they used to play. And what happened is that I used to go to all these gigs. And I realized that I don't, I can't understand what they're playing. I mean, I have no idea what they're playing. And that kind of felt really bad that, you know, I mean, why can't I get what they're playing? I can't understand anything. I like it, but I can't understand anything. When you say I can't understand, was it, would you say like... The artistic statement they I mean, were making or the technical uh, things? Both, happen. both. The art, the, I mean, the artistic uh, sensibility as an audience, I really enjoyed it. But I wanted to understand exactly what they're playing. What rhythm is that? What scale is that? What are these chords? Mm. How are they, you know, syn synchronizing together on, on this? What is this time signature? It's not 4-4. Four, four. What is it? I can't get it. So things like this. Mm. So then I decided that, you know, I really have to dig deeper into it. 
because I'm losing out on all the fun that these guys are having on stage. And I don't, as a musician, it's a shame that I don't understand any of uh, any of these things what they're doing. So that's why I kind of decided that no, I have to do this full time. I cannot, you know, do other things. I cannot get a day job or I cannot work in my father's. I was oh yeah, I was working in my father's business back then. Okay. As we were working there, you know, and so I said that you know either if I continue this, then I won't be able to first of all concentrate on the business full time. I won't even be able to play guitar at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So I decided that no, I, this is exactly what I want to do. And in 2008, I told my dad that look, you know, this is the thing. I mean, all your heroes, like, you know, Vilayat Khan or Nikhil Banerjee or whoever they are, I mean, they spent their, dedicated their entire life to protecting their craft. So I think I have to take that journey. And he understood. And he said, okay, do it. So that's when I really started, you know, I went back to my teacher and said that, you know, please teach me from the beginning. Like, how do I get into this kind of music? That's really awesome. So that's how I... I, I took the decision and he said, okay, listen to these albums, John Coltrane, my favorite thing, Smile Stevens, kind of blue and, you know, Harvey Hancock, Headhunters for more fusion stuff and things like that. So that's when I started digging deeper and just, uh, that's when I actually, I didn't use to practice that much before that, but from 2008 to 2013, I think I was practicing almost eight to 10 hours a day and listening to just listening to, I, I stopped listening to rock, I stopped listening to pop, anything. And I was just continuously listening to uh, jazz, jazz and, and fusion. Yeah, that's an interesting um, uh, commonality that often exists between, I'm going to use the word, uh, I don't know, um, well, musicians who lay a lot of value on technical skills that uh, most of us seem to have had a phase where we stopped listening to well pop music not popular music but pop music and just <laughs> kind of concentrate on um, I don't know like serious or intense or like complex mm-hmm. music and in hindsight would you have done it the same way do you think that shunning pop music for a certain phase of your life was uh, helpful i think it was helpful because you know that's the kind of music i was listening to since i was a kid mm. and also when i picked up guitar i was listening to you know like uh, relatively simpler music or uh, popularly appealing like if, you know blue beatles and things like that i mean which is more mainstream or more accessible so I already loved it. It's not that, you know, I didn't like it or anything like that. Mm. I mean, I will always be a Pink Floyd fan or a Led Zeppelin fan or even an Iron Maiden fan or an Oasis fan. So, but the thing is that I already, you know, had a liking for that and I was kind of familiar with that realm. And this realm, this fusion music or jazz or whatever you want to call it, it was alien to me. So I really had to concentrate fully on that just to have a basic understanding okay what's going on so coming out of your comfort zone exactly so i kind of shunned you know the kind of music that i was comfortable with because it's it'll be there gotcha. i mean i listen to it right now and i love it i play in a rock band as well and i love it but for that time when i was i really wanted to get into more complex forms of music i really first wanted to understand it for what it is nice yeah, and so I sense. thought that you know I should dedicate myself hundred percent to that for until I at least have a basic understanding of what it's all about. How did it feel in the beginning diving into that alien zone where you were you felt like a newbie? It was uh, overwhelming. Mm. <laughs> there was so much incredible stuff going on, and the more I started listening to these uh, records, 
I felt like the more I felt like that I don't know anything. But I took up the challenge, uh, you know, that okay, I have to start somewhere, mm-hmm. and let's see what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And I got access to this amazing uh, curriculum by Jamie Ebersold. Nice. So then I I read the first chapter. I got it on PDF and MP3. I read the first chapter and I was very inspired, saying that okay, I mean, it's not you know that unreachable or that untouchable. You just have to take baby steps. Mm-hmm. So so that's where I you know I have had this uh, swing backing track with drums, bass, and piano. It's just three chords: F minor, E flat minor, D minor. And so that's how I actually learned that okay, there's a different way to pick your guitar, and that there's a it's a different idiom and a different language to be able to swing. Even though it's a it's something I knew. I mean, these Dorian modes, F Dorian, uh, all all of these, E flat. I I knew these modes, but the way I was playing it was a very uh, you know uh, guitar player rock influenced kind of things like Joe Satriani, Frank Gambale, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It was a different language. And over here, I had to completely adapt to a different sensibility. I, first of all, I had to stop bending. I had to stop doing these blues vibratos and things like that. I had to adapt to that language entirely. The scale that I was improvising on, this is the first you know, formative time that I'm talking about in 2008. It was familiar to me and I kind of felt confident that, okay, it's actually not that difficult or not that unreachable. I can do it. So that's how it all started. Then I, you know, I started obviously pestering my teacher for more lessons, more harmonic expansion. You know, what do you do? There's a G7 chord. What all can you do after that? What are the outside notes? How do you play these outside notes? What is a 251? What is a 1625? What are rhythm changes? And I kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And at the same time, you know, my uh, I had met Bumpy, who was already a prolific player back then. And he said, okay, I want to do this jazz fusion band. Ken Daka, you know, you want to play? We have to rehearse very diligently. I said, okay, sure. Tell us a little more about Bumpy. I mean, you and I probably know him by his more colloquial name, but maybe for our audiences, tell us a little more about this acquaintance. Moinak Choudhury, Bumpy. He's a bass player from India and one of the finest musicians I've met. And, and uh, because he had a very unique approach of uh, playing bass, so that's what I loved about him, is that he had his own sound. And he developed a system where he's, you know, uh, studied under... Uh, Hindustani and Carnatic classical musicians and he developed his own technique studying time signatures, rags and things like that. So he kind of, I would say, treating the bass like a veena rather than just a you know a bass guitar. I mean, obviously he had a solid background and you played together in Orient Express. Yeah, different lifetime, but indeed, yes. A different lifetime, exactly. So that's how I knew him as Orient Express's bass player, like this prolific bass player. But he also had this, over the years, he developed this sensibility where, you know, he really made it an effort to sound like an Indian bass player on the global map. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really love about him. And, and his compositions I found very interesting because they were not the kind of stuff that I was studying back then because I was studying uh, jazz standards. Mm. When I, when I, you know, when I, I'm, during that time in 2008. And he was like, okay, this is on a time cycle of five and a half. And what the hell is a five and a half? <laughs> <laughs> so what the hell is a five and a half? Explain to us. So the way he taught me is that, oh, it's very simple. It's four and one and a half. So it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. So that's how, you know, he taught me. So I asked him and over, I think, before rehearsal, we met a couple of hours before and we sat down with a couple of beers. And then he, he kind of explained the rudiments of Konakul, the Indian, uh, the Carnatic South Indian counting system. Mm. And then I studied that. 
and I watched this video by Selva Ganesh and John McLaughlin called right. uh, I bought the DVD. Oh yeah, yeah. me too. Uh, gate, gate, yeah, Gateway to Rhythm. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. That really helped me, and what really helped me more was like you know I joined uh, you know tabla player Tanmay Bose's world music outfit Tal Tamso, and over there he was dropping bandishes and tehais at the at the you know at the blink of an eye, mm-hmm. and. And when I joined that, I mean, I'm not part of it anymore. But when I joined that, I, 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 that was another different world opening up, and I didn't know what to do with that. So I, then I, in 2009, I parallelly was studying Hindustani classical as well. Mm-hmm. So I have Pompey to thank for that, Manak uh, Nagpuri, and we are best, we are you know, great friends right now. He has his own thing, I have my own thing. But it was a very important part, uh, turning point in my career, I think. I'm trying to trace the trajectory of the journey you've had. So you let me let me summarize, and please let me know if I'm doing a decent job till now. So here here's a guy born in the heart of Kolkata to a somewhat artsy family. Grows up listening to Dark Side of the Moon because that's the best way his mum can get him to eat his lunch. Um, buys an acoustic guitar and turns out it's the only hobby in contrast to karate and um, the rest of the stuff he's doing. It's the only hobby he sticks to and eventually transitions to an electric guitar. Feels frustrated that uh, bands from the West play music, the complexities of which he can't quite decipher, and digs deeper into jazz, uh, get, starts getting mentored by Ahmed Dotto, and then meets Moinak Nakchod, who starts getting in touch with his Indian roots, the rhythmic side, and moves on to start uh, collaborating with the likes of Tonmay Bose. Have I summarized? that clearly enough till now yeah, yeah. bingo yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely. all right I, I do that because it, i mean it is a pretty complex journey but i want to start honing in on how you started building your own voice and working on your own band right right the bodhisattva trio when did that start happening because that's what we really want to dig into today yeah exactly so this happened around 2011 12 where i thought that you know because i was already in this uh, system of challenging music for around three years three, three and a half years mm-hmm. and i thought that you know about like playing in kendraka i started having a little bit of a footprint in the sound of the band mm-hmm. and uh, the drummer jivraj singh you know he is another inspiration i would say mm-hmm. because he had this completely different sensibility and i didn't know anybody who played drums like that right it was alien to me. It's not swing. It's not punk. It's the he said, "Okay, check out this guy, mm-hmm. Chris Dave, you know, Jojo Mayer." Mm-hmm. So he oh, he opened up that world uh, to me, and uh, we, I was gelling with him, and I was gelling with Bumpy in the in Kenjak, and I kind of felt that you know I have a few things to say as well. Nice. So that so then I decided that okay, uh, let me try something on my own. Let's see if I can find the right musicians. Maybe I can do like this really uh, loud blues rock fusion kind of uh, outfit because I love playing the blues mm-hmm. and I love playing rock and I had, you know, uh, I was getting into this kind of uh, a journey as well with these complexities. So maybe I have, I can do something on my own. Nice. Interestingly, what happened in 2011 is that uh, there was this place called Basement uh, and the curator of that place said that, okay, uh, you know, there's Jimi Hendrix's uh, birthday coming up. So he approached me and said, why don't you do a tribute? Nice. That's the kind of music I eat for breakfast. (laughs) Quite a hearty breakfast there. (laughs) I mean, I used to wake up and 
you know, while going about my own business, I put on a Hendrix tape or something. Nice. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity. I said, okay, I'll get hold of a bass player and I'll get hold of a drummer. And he said, why don't you call it Bodhi and Friends? I said, no, that sounds very cheesy. I'll call it the Bodhisattva Trio. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That does sound cheesy. And thank you for not calling it Bodhi. I mean, it could have been worse. It could be Bodhi and Hands, another popular terminology. <laughs> A digress. No, no, that's very fun. So, yeah, so I called it the Bodhisattva Trio and I approached uh, this bass player called Rohit Mukherjee. He had a good groove. And I called Premjit Dutta. Seemed like a very prolific drummer and he was uh, Monojit Dutta's one of his brightest students. Mm. And so we played that gig and then we realized that we are, especially me and Premjit, we are really connecting musically. I mean, we are kind of, it was almost, you know, uncanny and eerie that, you know, he's playing a phrase and I'm anticipating it and playing something. And when I'm playing a lick, he's responding to it. So after that gig, kind of, we, I said, I told him that, you know, why don't we play some original music, you know, because we have such a great chemistry. That's when I started writing some basic uh, melodies, trying to put in whatever information that I have received over the years. So that's how it started, kind of started like a progressive rock fusion band, actually, with the three of us. So that's how the Bodhisattva Shio started. And, uh, May I butt in for a second? Sure. Your earliest compositions and mm. your writing process, you want to take us through that a little? I say that because it'd be a fantastic manner to do a comparative study of, for my listeners, what we're heading towards eventually is Bodhi's current project, which is about to be recorded with an orchestra. That's right. Which is like almost like the ultimate ultimate endeavor for a composer or arranger. So it'll be very interesting to trace back the roots of your earliest songwriting and compositional process. You want to mm. tell us a little more about that? Yeah, uh, definitely, it uh, it started as a guitar-based drums uh, trio, like that kind of a thing. Um, very much, you know, very blues rock oriented. That's how it started. And then I wanted to incorporate these progressive rock elements, experimental elements, like some harmonic complexities, then odd time signatures, rhythmic complexities. So that's how it kind of, it was still a very loud band back then. And it was uh, not really jazz. It had certain ideas coming from jazz, some harmonic ideas and things like that. But it was very much progressive blues rock kind of a situation. Mm. So that's how it started. And obviously we were playing and playing and playing. And, and what happens to every band, I think, you know, who are really uh, between me and Premjit and uh, also the next the next bass player, Tatai, Bijit. What happened between the three of us is that we had a great chemistry and because we were playing and practicing all of these tunes written by us, we kind of eventually started getting bored. Mm. So when we were listening back to our recordings, we were like almost, I mean, we were really excited, but six months down the line, we are like, ah, no, no, this is not good. Mm. Then we come up with something else, and then again, six months down the line, no, no, this is not good. So we con like continuously kind of did uh, R&D kind of a thing, and I always, you know, looked, you know, back at uh, when you know, when I'm on my own, completely alone. I was always thinking that, uh, how do you, I, I used to like it back then, but I don't like it right now. Why don't I like it right now? And, and so these kind of questions, you know, uh, you know, internal questions kind of drove me to dig deeper and deeper and change, uh, you know, the sound of the band, basically. Mm. So from there, slowly more jazz elements started coming in. A huge influence of mine uh, is uh, Wayne Cranz. Mm. for that yeah I love that guy because yeah and so when I heard his trio I was amazed at that way that he carried this aggressive kind of a rock kind of vibe with him but the complexity and the philosophy is so deep yeah 
So I started really studying uh, Wayne Kranz in detail. People like Wayne Kranz and I think Alan Holdsworth and Meister. And I can't, you know, play anything that Alan Holdsworth. <laughs> Now these are the masters. Uh, I am curious though, um, in the beginning, could you tell us a little more about your melodic, harmonic and rhythmic influences? Because I feel like there are quite a few, there's quite an eclectic uh, mix of influences that come together. Yeah, actually quite a bit. So as you know, and right now, before that, I must say that you know, right now the sound is completely different because we don't have a bass player. Yeah, we have right. a pianist right now yeah, right. who's playing synth bass. Right. So that's when I started uh, studying things like Mark Juliana and, and Jojo Mears, Noel, mm. things like that. Nice. So those influences also came in. So as far as melodic things are concerned, I'm very obviously inspired by uh, David Gilmour mm. because I think he's. sense of melodies unparalleled yeah his guitar literally sings hard relate yeah one of my favorite musicians ever absolutely i'm a huge fan of vilayat khan actually mm. <clears throat> legendary sitar then uh, i'm a fan of people like uh, john scofield uh, as as guitar players wayne cranz so that kind of thing i am a huge fan of you know saxophone players like uh, my favorite saxophone player and a huge inspiration behind the outlook of music is has to be john coltrane mm. so so that is there i listen to a lot of piano definitely i love uh, bill evans keith, keith jarrett and uh, as far as fusion stuff and punk and punk fusion and that i was first time i heard headhunters by herbie hancock i was my mind was blown so i wanted to dig deeper into that do you have a specific approach in amalgamating these harmonic influences onto the melodic influences because you know one could tend to think that the sources of these influences are very different very different i ask because it's it's one of the most interesting things for me to observe in the indian musical landscape the contemporary landscape that there's still a huge it's very much a work in progress it is again i think our generation has a privilege of being part of a time where these two worlds were still vastly separate i mean and they still are but the gap isn't as huge there was a a, a universe of melody which had never met an entirely different universe of harmony for like generations that's right i'd like to think we are the first generation at least from south asia who are getting to witness the beginnings of a coming together of these two universes that's true i we are very our generation i think is very fortunate that i would agree yes to be fair there have been sincere attempts in the past as well but for whatever reason i think for circumstances or the lack of infrastructure or understanding of certain nuances um i mean that's a that's probably material for an entirely different episode but focusing on yours what are your tools to bring these two universes together oh that's a very interesting question and i really don't have an answer for that but what i can tell you is uh my uh, composing process yes please yeah i think that will explain because when i compose a piece of music i don't pick up an instrument i don't do it with my guitar or piano or anything beautiful what I, what i do is i just think about it and the first thing that comes into my mind is the concept behind the composition the mood the feeling nice what it what it's about nice. first and foremost so when that is about obviously it channels a certain kind of emotion be it sadness or anxiety anger pain uh, gratitude you name it happiness whatever whatever mm-hmm. so what kind of a groove am i hearing on this mood mm-hmm. technically speaking the rhythm comes first 
So, okay, am I hearing this kind of a slow funk kind of a groove on 4-4 and am I hearing a really busy bebop or uh, a timtal or japta or whatever, what kind of a groove, what is the time signature to that? Mm -hmm. And I try to imagine a kind of bass line or any kind of bass elements that can be, could be a bass line, bass guitar, right now it's a synth bass. So obviously I force myself to think like that or a piano or things like that. So the groove kind of the rhythmic element kind of takes shape in my mind. And then over that rhythm, I try to think about a melody which will kind of, will kind of reflect exactly what I'm feeling. Mm. So when that is done, when I like a kind of a basic skeleton of a melody, I record voice notes on my phone. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be anything. It could be a melody borrowed from uh, John Coltrane. It could be a melody borrowed from David Gilmore. It could be anything. And the groove could be also anything, anything that I'm feeling particularly. And when I've done that, maybe the next day I listen back to the voice recording. I do a basic, uh, very uh, you know, rudimentary drum programming on my computer. And I record the guitar on top of that with the melody. I'm confused though, when you say uh, a borrowed melody from Coltrane or Gilmore, do you mean like a melody inspired by their approaches or? Uh, no, inspired by, I mean, the way these guys would think. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha, okay. And then kind of think about it, I record it uh, and listen back and I think that, okay, what should be the harmonic approach for this? Because that's a very integral part of this. If it's sad, then I have to think, choose a particular set of chords or a chord progression. And if it's like uh, very twisted, then, you know, maybe bring out very complex and atonal stuff mm. and see what fits, what does justice to the melody itself. And after that, when I have a skeleton of the idea of the rhythm and the melody and the harmony, then I call the band. Nice. And so then we have the rehearsal and then we, then I get their ideas in as well. And we record the rehearsal, the first rehearsal in uh, on my phone. And then again, without an instrument, I'm just sitting on my own and listening to the recording. And then again, coming up with another fresh set of ideas on how to treat this composition. So what happens to me is actually what whatever plays in my head is obviously because no music is truly original. We've all heard something somewhere. So whatever clicks with that particular sense of emotion has to be somewhere in my library, in somewhere. Mm. You know, so I have to just pick up the right book. That's how I think these worlds are coming together. I don't really make a conscious effort of doing Fusion, fusion. That's a very troublesome word. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how, how you say no music is truly original. And I agree with you in principle. It can be a tricky sentiment to navigate, though. Um, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're trying to get is, you know, the, we can't reinvent a wheel and the languages are already there. We can't reinvent the language. But exactly. um, I'd like to think, uh, you know, the expressions we're... we're aiming to put out there using that language is will be original absolutely i think you i i couldn't have said it better than what you what you just said yeah i, I did want to clarify that because i wouldn't want my listeners to think that uh, you don't think your, your music is not original that is not the feeling i would no no obviously i mean obviously like like we are speaking in english exactly. you know this language is there what we what I'm speaking is up to me. Right, right. And we know we can't reinvent the vocabulary. Yeah. So that's what I meant when I said that uh, no music is original because you are borrowing, you know, tools. If I'm playing a D minor chord, that's somewhere somewhere. Exactly. Done it, so things like that. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Uh, but how I play the D minor chord and what happens before that and after that, that's original. Yeah. 
for sure. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I did want to. It's a complex age we're living in, where words can be taken out of context uh, in so easily at the drop of a hat. That's true. That's I did want to make sure that we clarified that. All right, man. So, and, and now we're kind of focusing in on the most interesting part of this uh, journey. Before we uh, move on to your current project, right. to start off with, you're signed to a label in Europe and Croatia. That's right. Um, I'd like to ask you how, how that journey's been, number one, and secondly, how you've been received in Europe. I, I, I do keep up with some of your social media feed, and it's interesting how <laughs> well uh, your music has been received in Europe. I'd like to think um, it's also the beginning of a new time where uh, stereotypical presumptions on what an Indian band is supposed to sound like are being broken, and uh, your band is playing its role in that movement. So um, I threw a lot of information at you right now, but you want to elaborate on the overall vibe I'm aiming at with this? Yeah, exactly. I understand <clears throat> what you're saying. And uh, I'll. it's a long answer, but I try to keep, keep it short. No, no, no. You don't have to keep it short. Just you know, yeah. speak your mind. <laughs> This is your show. So, yeah. So what happened? I have to go back to 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, during our first Kendraka tour where we played together. So, you know, after Switzerland, after playing these uh, four gigs at Birdseye Jazz Club, we went to Croatia. Mm -hmm. And I, we went to Rijeka, in fact. And I met this really awesome guy called Sonir, uh, Sonir Sardoc, mm -hmm. who used to run this place called Jazz Tunnel. We had a great gig. And this guy was is truly awesome. I mean, one of the most wonderful human beings I've met. And we connected and we became friends. We exchanged numbers and things like that. And uh, <clears throat> came back home, obviously. And then, you know, like I said in today's episode itself about how the trial started, how we are challenging ourselves. And then we said that, okay, before, uh, I think that, you know, I told the guys, I, th I think that the kind of territory we are tapping into might work in Europe. You know, because that kind of uh, the demographics and the way people think is a little similar, I think, to the music that we are writing. I think we will receive well, so let's go. So that's how it all, sta all started. Our first tour, we literally treated it like a vacation and we went spending our own money and played five gigs, only five gigs. One in France, two in Croatia, and one in Slovenia. Mm -hmm. So before that, I wrote to this guy, Sonir Sardoc, and he said, yeah, sure, you can come to Rijeka and play two concerts. So we did. That was okay. That was a decent enough tour. And, but... Uh, I came back, then we again went in 2017, where it was uh, much, you know, the sound had evolved. And we applied for a festival in Lithuania, in Vilnius, the uh, Vilnius Mama Jazz Festival. Mm -hmm. And we, and they heard our music and they said, okay, you guys are on. Nice. And we did some gigs in, some gigs in Poland, I have two concerts in Poland, one in Poznan, one in Gdansk, one in Berlin, in Germany, and... Again, two concerts in Croatia. So we, that was the second time we went to Croatia. And that, that happened and it was, uh, we were received quite well. That was a pretty interesting and nice tour for us in 20, November 2017. We came back and we, uh, there was a lineup change. Our bass player had to leave. He wanted to pursue a different direction. And we brought in Shonan, this uh, amazing uh, pianist. And we made a conscious decision that, okay, let's not have another bass player because I want to really move out of the rock sound a little bit. Like uh, the electric bass, kind of like a very grounded sound. I wanted to keep it a little more open and floaty, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So we brought in this guy, Shonai, who was playing synth bass and automatically, automatically like that, 
sound of the band change. Yeah, just as an entirely different bed of possibilities. Exactly. It, and it completely changed like 180 degrees. And then it became more jazz, definitely. We had, we were starting to include more jazz elements, more harmonic elements, more jazz sensibilities as far as, you know, swing and things like that are concerned. Mm-hmm. Cadences, swing, this kind of things. And also this electronic influence was there. This, uh, what can I say? Things like, uh, you know, Mark Juliana, um, Jojo Mayer, that kind of a sensibility was also creeping in hmm. with the inclusion of the synthesis. So we recorded the album and immediately after recording it, even before the mix, I had decided that, you know, this is not going to work in India. This is definitely not going to work in India. Why do you say that? I, I hear a lot of contemporary indie musicians saying this. You want to tell us, man, why, why would you think it won't work in India? I'm curious. Yeah, it's a good question, in fact. And uh, I remember this conversation that we had a while back, I think, about this word called virtuosity. Hmm. Right. Oh, I hear you already. I think I know where this is headed. Yeah, so I think that's why it's not going to work in India, because we are not flexing our chops over here. Gotcha. We are actually more concentrated on the design, the soundscape and the philosophy rather than fast licks and mind-blowing, you know, like, wow. I mean, that's great. That's great. Obviously, that's great. So, sidegeist relevant music. Yeah, exactly. So, that that's why an Indian audience somehow, I think, yeah. is not ready for, for that kind of a headspace. It, it kind of winds back to the patriarchal nature of Indian society, which is still very much hung up on the very old paradigm of yeah. testosterone music, really. <laughs> it's uh, which is very funny because yeah. uh, you know there's also this deep ancient you know thousand year old plus traditions of arts yeah. which have their roots in more feminine energies but I have the feeling that anytime the whole idea of western music comes in it's like looked upon as the masculine counterbalance to the very feminine roots in Indian arts I don't know maybe this is me that's my projection yeah uh, but that's a great point of view I mean I'll keep this in mind um, it's a very interesting way of looking at it. Actually. I never thought about it like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. I had a very similar conversation with uh, Adam Gregg a couple of weeks back. Right. Um, the director of the KMMC Conservatory in Chennai. Wow. And yeah, it's it's still uh, quite... Um, honestly, I'm, I, I would be lying if I said I know exactly... I mean, honestly, it's kind of shocking for me exactly how hung up people still are on a very, very dated idea of virtuosity. <laughs> but uh, hearing it from the horse's mouth from someone like a like legit 100% homegrown global musician like you just kind of uh, helps me understand uh, that a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad that you understand exactly, you know, what I, you know, what I said, that's what exactly, so that kind of, kind of uh, prompted me to think that, okay, we have to sign with an overseas level, mm-hmm. preferably, you know, European, because we've been there twice. So I started shooting all these emails. One, uh, you know, I got a few responses saying that, okay, this, uh, this is what we have to offer. This, we are not really a record label, more of a booking agency or a production house, things like that. And my good friend, which I, whom I talked about, Sonir from Rieka, he connected me with these guys in tech music from Koprivnitsa, which is a little off uh, from Zagreb. Mm-hmm. And they, and we connected, I sent them the unmixed material and they liked it so much and said that, okay, wow, we haven't heard anything like this before. We'll definitely sign you up. Awesome. Yeah, so that's how we kind of got the deal and they signed us up and they really helped us with the mastering and the promotion and publication and things like that. And of course, 
they also booked us for around 10 concerts in Slovenia and Croatia in 2019. Mm. So that was, I think, the best uh, time of uh, of the band so far. How did that feel, man? I mean, this was a pretty big deal, I would like to think. I mean, making that breakthrough from uh, playing the circuits you were, catering to the somewhat dated stereotypical ideas of what Indian contemporary music is supposed to sound like and then making this huge leap forward. How did that feel? Mm-hmm. Now, have you actually taken a minute to contemplate on how what a big deal that is, one, and how that feels? <laughs> I didn't think about it like it was a big deal, first of all. But what it, what it felt was something extremely special in the sense that, uh, you know, you have this thing in the West where, you know, you have, pre, you know, presumptions about what a band from India can sound like. Indeed. Yeah, so that's where I think, uh, you know, that's where I felt really good that, you know, we were actually kind of successfully breaking stereotypes about what an Indian band can go through. A very interesting anecdote is uh, when we were driving from uh, this beautiful place called Bovets in the Slovenian Alps, we had a manager, we had a tour manager in Italy mm. called uh, Darko. Mm-hmm. So he drove us, you know, to and from Ljubljana. And he was basically a manager. And on the drive back, he I, I said that, you know, in 2020, we are definitely going to be back. So, uh, we didn't, obviously, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, uh, so he said that, you know, I mean, it's great. I love your music. And we have played this amazing festival called uh, Festival Lent in Maribor, mm-hmm. where we played at this amphitheater and it was a, quite a surreal experience. In fact. So, that was great. So, and uh, I, I asked him that, okay, like we played at this festival this year. Uh, what are the other festivals that we can uh, play in in 2020? He said, yeah, I love your music, but it's going to be very difficult to book you guys. Uh, I said, why? Because, you know, you're a band from India, so people will expect, uh, you know, things from Indian classical music or uh, uh, tabla mm. or uh, traditional instrument. Yeah. So I asked him that if you're getting a band from Tokyo, would you expect them to have traditional Japanese instruments? And he said, no. Yeah, that's a legit question. <laughs> so I said, would you expect them? Would you, if it's a, if it's a bebop outfit, a quartet or a quintet from Tokyo, will you be asking the same question? Then he said, no, I won't. So I said, there you go. But then why are you asking a, a, an Indian band whether they can have traditional? And then he said, oh, it's probably because we are conditioned like that because of, you know, people like Ravi Shankar and Zakir Hussain. Yeah. You know, that's the, you know, I mean, that's great. That's amazing. That's, they, they are my heroes. Yeah. But I want to get out of this, uh, whole thing which which is like labeling India as these guys can only do their traditional music they're not good at rock or they're not good at jazz yeah. so I wanted to break this kind of uh, tradition and that kind of felt really great on the on our last word yeah right there with you man I mean it's a it's a challenge I've dealt with most of my musical career absolutely I mean in your career I can I can totally imagine it's, um, I mean, it wouldn't be fair uh, to put us in the same box for the simple reason uh, the set of challenges are slightly different for someone who's European of Indian ancestry because there are a set of different set of pros and cons. There are certain privileges I also get to enjoy as a result, but there are also additional uh, challenges. I'm accepted, not, uh, I mean, I have an equal level of struggles both in the motherland and in my passport countries, uh, passport uh, yeah, uh, yeah, continent, yeah, yeah. sorry. So uh, it wouldn't be fair to compare the challenges. But then again, um, 
you know, the, the kind of infrastructural challenges homegrown musicians like you deal with, I don't know, paperwork, visas, economics, that's again a whole different uh, league of things. I mean, we haven't even gone there yet. I mean, that's a whole, again, probably material for uh, an entire series of podcasts. <laughs> But uh, yeah. <laughs> before we go down that rabbit hole, um, this is a good time to focus in on your current project, which is the most ambitious and adventurous endeavor, uh, not just you guys, but anyone from India has done for a while as an independent contemporary jazz slash fusion trio from India. So tell us more. Uh, so what happened is that, you know, obviously, you know, we didn't go back in 2020 and in 2021 things got worse with the second wave and obviously we had to sit out again. So we decided and in the meantime, so what happened, obviously, uh, we started writing newer music. We've got bored once again of our previous album. Mm -hmm. And this time, the conceptually, it's a, we kind of moved a little away. The last album was uh, the Grey album. It was about humanity. Mm -hmm. So the concept of the album, let me just explain it in a nutshell. We are, you know, interacting with the forces of the cosmos. Hmm. And so it had to be a two-way process, which is why I heard that, okay, this needs to have a big sound. And I was hearing cinematic ideas and orchestral ideas. Hmm. So the trio is the human presence and the orchestra is the cosmic forces. But we needed a... Uh, of contemporary uh, orchestra, like a jazz orchestra, people who do experimental stuff. And I contacted our record labels and I, because they are some incredible musicians that I met in Croatia. Mm -hmm. And our record label, I made, uh, you know, we are very good friends right now. Uh, this guy called Marin, who's an excellent uh, music producer and pianist. And I asked him, he said, okay, I'll get you in touch with this guy called Mark Murtic, who's like a very critically acclaimed composer and arranger. He's very busy. He's kind of, uh, he's Croatian, but, you know, he worked extensively in London as well as in uh, Canada. And he has this ensemble called Mimica Orchestra, which is a 20-piece orchestra with uh, an extensive horn section, which is really interesting. I mean, really, you must check them out. They're great. Yeah, I intend to. Can you help me out with the name of the orchestra, please? Yeah, it's it's a Mimica Orchestra, M-I-M-I-K-A. Which is not just any regular orchestra, they're an alternative progressive mm. art music orchestra yeah, based yeah. in London. Oh, no, sorry, based in Croatia, but formed in London. Based in Zagreb, yeah. Formed in London, that's right. There are so many universes coming together here. It's just the fact that, you know, this is not just some <laughs> uh, regular orchestra. The, the orchestra in themselves are very experimental. And now, uh, mm. then there's you folks who are also very experimental, breaking stereotypes. And now, the two of you are... Merging forces, this is pretty mammoth, um, even on mm. a, uh, from, from a sociocultural lens. Additionally, there's also the mechanics of writing for orchestra or, or arranging orchestra that's for right, the kind of music right, for you right, folks are doing. Right. You say the inspiration, the seed behind the inspiration of collaborating with an orchestra was this cosmic scale and you wanted that whole complete spectrum of sound. That's right, that's right. What's the process like? No, I, I, I first just uh, sent him some rehearsal recordings and our previous album. Nice. And so that he knows that, you know, what we are about, mm. what kind of a sound. And then he liked it. He said, yeah, this is good. And I sent him the concept that, okay, this is the thing. And these are the compositions. I mean, half the tunes now are written, but when I first got in touch with him, some of the tunes were not written. So he said, okay, I think what you do is you just, you know, do your own thing 
and send me the scores of the head hmm. and and whatever recordings that you can uh, that you can get rehearsal recordings whatever so right now we are in that uh, in that process so what he is going to do is that he is going to take all these compositions and he will like do his own take on it and then we will decide okay maybe this part uh, this solo section take out the guitar take out this and introduce the horns over there introduce the strings over there that doesn't work this works things like that. what's the recording process going to be like are you folks going to be recording in india and then having the orchestra record over there over the recordings so what the plan is that we do our homework ourselves the three of us and uh, mark you know he does his homework and then he rehearses with his orchestra and we keep exchanging notes and ideas and then we land up in zagreb and we rehearse continuously for four days together nice we do four ex- extensive rehearsals and then we go to the studio where we all record all i think 20 23 musicians together live amazing for for two days one day setup and two days of recording and that's it that's what you get legit as <laughs> fuck people this is definitely a, <laughs> definitely a project you want to go support um um i got to say i mean and this is an observation mind you not a judgment you know your uh, the manner in which you get the what's the right word the synapse of your concept the synopsis sorry mm. <clears throat> it tends to come across as very dystopian in the beginning on the surface but from what you say it it actually is a a work of hope mm-hmm. i mean uh, yeah it is kind of a, a work of hope no matter you know what um, happens i am a pretty i mean people you know who have my close friends and family they think of me as a very as a person who only sees the negative who's like very depressed and down yeah oh, tell us more about that is is that something you agree with i i don't i don't know i mean i don't see life as a very fun thing to do that's for sure that's for sure i think it's full of challenges full of hardship pain it's not it's not a very nice place but at the same time it's a, there is a, a, such a powerful concept called love which we can experience and we should be grateful for that mm. i think and uh, with all this happening around us and with uh, extremely polarized views international tensions at its peak right now uh, and in india it's a it's a mess with uh, you know the communal and religious and political aspects all coming together things like that so it's not a very pretty place but at the same time i do believe in humanity and i do believe that we are better than this. so in so in a way i am and not very pessimistic i would say i am i would call myself as a realist i understand the reality of things and i do hope for better times because i do believe in rise and fall and the law of averages everything can't be bad all the time everything can't be good all the time either there is a flow of balance that we are we have to go through i think that's i can summarize my belief in that <laughs> yeah it's interesting i mean uh, generally speaking just to clarify i, I wouldn't want to overstep boundaries but i do find i mean the artistic vision behind this and understanding the roots behind it um, you know are, are fascinating because honestly it sounds contradictory because you talk about the challenges in life being a general part of hardship and yet here you are mm-hmm. making some you know your the your actions prove that wrong 
because you're actually doing one of the most positive things people could do. A lot of so-called optimists would be sitting at home on their asses doing nothing about their lives. And then yet you are embarking on this super, really challenging uh, endeavor, which is actually probably one of the first. This is kind of history in the making. No independent band has attempted to do what you folks are about to do. And your actions are uh, as optimistic as it gets. And they kind of, yeah. And, and I'm, again, I, I can only say this is an observation, not a judgment. No, that's a great observation. I'm very thankful that you're, you, you're, you're telling me this. It makes me feel good. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. That's the idea. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, uh, and also artists are a sensitive bunch. You know, they, you know, they're affected by their circumstances to a degree, which is... We are, we are. Yeah. We are. Definitely. And it affects artists differently than it would a lot of others whose lives don't surround, aren't, don't revolve around understanding the more sensitive nuances of life. And I think it's, um, the understanding the pain of an artist is not always an easy thing to do. And that lack of understanding can also kind of start in a circle of pain, which can be interpreted as mm -hmm. pessimism, mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. when looked at from a specific lens. So, um, yeah, it's um, artists are also, <laughs> especially musicians. They, pre I mean, we chose music as our primary mode of expression because not all of us are great with words. I mean, I know I started off playing music because I didn't want to speak. You know, um, I, I prefer playing <laughs> an instrument. I, I hated talking. It's like, I, I felt like no one understood what I said anyway, so I might as well just shut up and sing a song instead. You know what? I, yeah, you're, you're, abs you're absolutely right. I mean, I think like that as well. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, useless to, it's useless trying to speak and express, you know, I mean, personally. So let's just play. <laughs> I know, right? So, and, and except then adult <laughs> life happens and you realize that you can't really hide behind your instrument all your life. Mm. You know, mm. so the, the, then that part of growing up happens. And here we are talking mm. about it. You know, 10 years ago, if someone said I was curating a podcast, I'd, I'd be like, yeah, that's a joke. Um, point being um, that uh, this is a remarkable, pro remarkable project you guys have uh, embarked upon. Uh, it's a remarkable journey you have taken upon yourself. I've, I've had the honor of observing your journey for a, over a decade now at this point. Um, so for upcoming uh, younger generations of artists, uh, I mean, I make you sound mm. old, which you're not, <laughs> but you know, there are, uh, there is another generation already who, who are in their formative there stages. Is, there is. Uh, what are your words of advice? Uh, how do you recommend they go about realizing their dreams, dystopian or utopian? Uh, it comes down to one thing. I think it's uh, self-belief and self-evaluation. I think that's the most important thing. Be honest. My advice is be honest to yourself. Because if you're dishonest and you want to take shortcuts and think that, okay, I've made it in life or whatever, I have so many gigs, so much X amount of money, Y amount of views. I mean, that's really not the end. And that's not how you will want to go to sleep. You'll want to go to sleep, you know, washing your face and looking at your mirror and feeling happy about it. That, okay, I am doing justice to this life. I have a purpose. So I think that's the advice that have have and respect your purpose. So that's that's what I I I, I feel that you know I feel that just do whatever. Be honest to the art and craft that you're doing. Do not be bogged down by what other people say and other success stories and think that oh I haven't done anything in my life. No, I mean your best uh, evaluator is yourself. So self evaluation is very important. And of course, no target is big or unattainable. 
Mm. And do not try to jump steps because then you won't get there. You take baby steps, take it step by step by step by step and nothing is impossible. That's what. Sounds like some pretty fucking solid advice to me, man. I would totally second that. So, uh what's the best way to support you guys at this point? Just FYI all links to your uh, crowdfunding and your social media will be included on the episode notes, but from the horse's mouth, what's the best way we can come support you? Uh apart from obviously if the finances are a huge deal, we have a target of 6000 euros. We are slowly but steadily we are getting there and obviously we will get there, but that's how you can support us. Any contribution counts. any contribution even if it is 5 euros that also is makes a huge deal for us because we have costs involved and the more people donate you know it will help us to you know have it'll ease our process basically you know it'll make life less difficult for us yeah. number one and how and number two is that you know share the link and listen to our music share our music just uh, just share spread uh, awareness listen make your Uh, if you like the music you know have make your friends listen to the music not just the trio but the orchestra also mimic orchestra mm-hmm. and you know and just i don't know share the music and recommend it absolutely absolutely that's the that's the only way that's the only way and that's how you can you know you can help us i mean even if you listen to one song and you share it it means a lot to us it means really means a lot to us sounds about right parting thoughts before we taper off Uh, not really just uh, the most important thought is that an entire humanity all of us have been through a really tough time for the last two years but we should not lose hope and we should definitely believe in mankind and in humankind rather and hope for better days and not just hope for better days and do nothing do your part i think that's what we should be telling ourselves that let's work together that's why as a musician i think i'm pretty blessed to be a musician where we feel these things and we are we have the ability to love unconditionally like uh, if there is a problem there is a solution let's find it makes sense to me i do have one last question which i don't ask all my um, guests but i think you'd be a good candidate <laughs> so if you were in front of a sacred fire uh, and you want to burn something away what would that be uh, my bad habits my bad habits i would want to you know i have some uh, some bad habits obviously which is uh, derogatory to my health hmm. so i would want to definitely get rid of those because i don't have anything to complain about i have no regrets about the decisions that i've made it's all part of the journey but definitely uh, seeing myself grow old my parents getting older and new life being born like my friends my band members they're kids right now i think uh, taking care of our health is a very important aspect and i think i have not done a good job at that so i would want to get rid of my habits which are derogatory to my health definitely thanks for sharing that i think that's a very important sentiment to put out there i really appreciate that yeah i know i know about your uh, your journey and the way you've really introspected into that and hats off to you man for doing that yeah i appreciate that it's where uh, i mean we, we have, in my belief system we're dealt with a certain a pack of cards for very specific reasons and um, i mean at this point it, i actually work as a personal trainer as a counselor mm, yes i know like all the things yes. that you're doing so i'm um, i'm guessing you know that set of cards has had to do something with that in, in one way or the other but um, yeah uh, i really appreciate you sharing that fyi i'm going to stop recording now i'm sorry my endings are very abrupt 
gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in